unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Coming up on this week's show, we will reflect and honor many of the Hall of Fame baseball players who have passed away over the course of the last year. Obviously, notably, Hank Aaron passing away last week. Two of my stable of sports guys, Jay Cresswell, Joe Finger, will be here. They are standing by in the virtual green room and will join me for that discussion in just a few moments. So, here we are on the brink of Super Bowl 55. And, uh, you know, I said I would do it last week. You know, early in the season, when the Bucks fans were going out of their minds, they signed Tom Brady, and they were thinking, it's Super Bowl, baby, Super Bowl, baby. And I'm like, he's going to be 43, and I should have known better. So basically, I'm here to admit... I was ruined. <laughs> Stuck in my throat there, stuck in my throat. Ralph, look. I was winning. <laughs> yes, Henry Winkler is the great Arthur Fonzarelli. Could not admit he was wrong. <laughs> so I'm kind of admitting it without admitting it, so to speak. Anyway, so uh, the Bucks and the Chiefs. Bucks will have quote unquote home field advantage, at least they're playing on their home field. About 22,000 fans there or so. But uh, should be an interesting battle as Tom Brady plays in his 10th Super Bowl. 10. That's incredible. And Patrick Mahomes hoping to make it back-to-back. And we will delve more into that uh, big game next week. We'll do a couple of shows next week uh, talking about the upcoming Super Bowl. So one more time for my Brady and Bucks fans... I was ruined. It's kind of stuck in my throat there, stuck in my throat. Ralph, look. I was ruined. Time now for our discussion as we remember, honor, have great memories of many Hall of Fame baseball players, a couple of noteworthy ones as well that passed away over the last year as, you know, Hank Aaron passed away last week. Let's have a discussion about that as we are joined by my colleague from WKIS in the 1980s, Joe Finger. Joe, thanks for being here. Thanks, Jeff. Happy New Year. And also by my colleague at WGTO in the 90s, Jay Cresswell. Jay, welcome back. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for having me back. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so we're going to talk about, uh, you know, the the great Hall of Famers that have passed uh, within this uh, last uh, year or so. And uh, it's almost like a whole wing of the Hall of Fame is now in heaven, uh, if you will. Um, amazing. Yeah, it is uh, mind-boggling and all the memories of flood back. So I thought we'd get together and kind of talk about, you know, our memories of these guys and uh, you know, what they, what they meant to the sport, what they meant to the fans, what they meant to us and like, and whatnot. So let's get started. And uh, the first uh, uh, player we'll talk about is Lou Brock. Uh, one of my early favorite players, St. Louis Cardinals, obviously very noted for base stealing uh, when that uh, was still a, uh, 
still a treasured art <laughs> uh, back in the days of the 60s and 70s and 80s. And uh, Lou Brock, certainly uh, one of the great Cardinals. And of course, the one thing I always remember from Lou Brock is the Brock umbrella. I don't know if you've read a little umbrella that, invented that sits on top of your head. Uh, I don't think that ever really took off, but uh, I still remember it nonetheless. Uh, Jay, what's your thoughts on Lou Brock? Uh, I was a, uh, you know, I'm a born and raised Pirates fan, but in the late 60s when the Cardinals were really good, I was a Cardinals fan as well. And anytime I would play wiffle ball, I would be the Cardinals. And, the, of course, their leadoff hitter was Lou Brock. And because of that, I learned how to hit left-handed, uh, mind you, in wiffle ball. Uh, but it, it – and then, of course, Ted Simmons came along, and he was a switch hitter. So I learned how to do that, but it was literally because of Lou Brock – and that he was so fast and was the leadoff hitter for one of my favorite teams. Joe? Yeah, of course, I was an American League guy, but if I had to pick a National League team that I remember pretty well, it would be those Cardinal teams from the mid-late 60s, maybe early 70s. And and Brock, to me, was just uh, Mr. Smooth, Sweet Lou. And uh, somewhere up in my attic, I've got some baseball cards from that 67 World Series, where it's Brock steals another base. Brock does this, Brock does that. And so that was a couple of great years, great teams they had, 67 and 68. And and I'm sure as we progress on on this show tonight, we'll be talking about some other Hall of Famers who were in that World Series as well. Yep. Yeah, let's do that. His teammate, uh, Bob Gibson, one of the most feared pitchers there ever was to take the mound. And, uh, I mean, he was like a – he was a bulldog out there and would not give an inch. And uh, he did not fear pitching inside (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination. Joe, you lead off on this one. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was – when I I thought of Bob Gibson, you know, I think of a guy like, as you described, uh, fearless out there. Although I have heard – Bob Costas and some others say that, you know, in person, he was actually kind of a soft-spoken guy, belying the temperament that we're, we're so accustomed to seeing on the mound. But I think back to that MVP season he had in 68 and looking at the stats, and I think we've probably talked about this in the past, Jeff, and you probably have with maybe Jay as well, but 304 innings pitched in 68, an earned run average of 1.12 28 complete games and 13 shutouts. I mean, he pitched more complete games in one season than most good starters pitch in uh, a career these days. And to me, that that is one of the most dominant single-season uh, set of stats that I have seen anywhere from anyone at any time. And to me, that that was Bob Gibson. Jay? I'll tell you what. And, I, Joe, you have the numbers in front of you. He had a 1.12 ERA, and I think he lost seven games. Mm. So, yeah, he was uh, 22 and nine, actually. Nine. Actually, he lost nine times. I don't know how that happened. That was the year of the pitcher for sure. Anyhow, Bob Gibson is my favorite all time baseball pitcher. Um, and it was just because of those attributes that Joe listed. Uh, when I pitched in Little League, my windup was modeled after Bob Gibson. Um, I love the way he worked fast. I saw him and Doc Ellis in a duel at Three Rivers Stadium, and the game lasted an hour and 50 minutes, and it ended up 2-1, and it was as good as any of these 1918 games that, you know, get played today. Um, Bob Gibson also, and I, 
you know, when he passed away, I thought of this. He was one, he was so athletic that in his first pro season, he was also a member of the Harlem Globetrotters. And he was one of the first black athletes to do major national endorsements for commercials. He did Primatine Mist because he was Bob Gibson and he had bronchial asthma. That's the direct quote in that kind of high-pitched voice of his. And also for Lexan Windows, we had Bob Gibson throw six innings of fastballs against these Lexan Windows to prove that they wouldn't break. So Bob was a trailblazer. And you know what? He didn't hit too many batters. It was merely the intimidation factor that worked for him. My favorite pitcher of all time. So yeah. when you emulated him, did you uh, did you uh, pitch inside against those little leaguers? <laughs> I, I, although I had very good control, my manager would not like it if I had done stuff like that. So I did not do that. I just threw <laughs> strikes. <laughs> but yeah, you know, and, and, and I, I, of course, have other memories of Bob Gibson uh, as a pitching coach with the Atlanta Braves. He was on uh, yeah. Joe Torrey's staff in the 80s uh, working with the Braves pitchers there. Keeping with pitching, um, I think the term face of a franchise uh, applies very much here in the great Tom Seaver uh, with the New York Mets. Uh, you know, he was on a tremendous pitching staff, but uh, he was the mo- most noteworthy of them all, had a terrific career, won over 300 games. Uh, Jay, you lead off on this one. Sure. Um, terrific. Tom Terrific. And it's not Tom Brady. It's Tom Seaver. Uh he was the face of the franchise. I think those of us who weren't Mets fans still could not believe that they traded him and felt badly for the fan base that the owner was dumb enough to trade the face of the franchise to the Reds where he went on to have a no-hitter. And then eventually, I guess, he, at the White Sox, he won his 300th game. I may be wrong in that. But Tom Seaver was the personification of class. He was the all-American boy. His wife was beautiful. They, they were the face of everything that was good and wholesome about baseball in the 60s and 70s. Joe? Yeah, when, when Tom died last year, Cleon Jones, the old teammate from the Mets, described him as a Boy Scout. And he said yep. that in the most endearing way. He was, he was the, the real deal. I read a quote from uh, Joe Willie Namath, of all people, and he talked about two different personalities. <laughs> but Namath said, um, uh, Tom was a sharp man, a different kind of personality, a little quieter, softer, uh, but very diligent. You knew he was going about his business. And uh, you talk about the Mets letting Seaver get away. I, what if they had kept Seaver and Nolan Ryan together. Uh, who knows how the history books would have would have been different. But uh, but yeah, I can't really add anything more to what what you know Jay had said. Seaver was the but I'd say with Bob Gibson probably the two most uh, dominant pitchers I recall from back back in the uh, the wonder year days of our youth. Mm-hmm. And keeping it in, in the face of the franchise category, probably none bigger than face of the franchise and Al, K- Al Kaline because he was nicknamed Mr. Tiger. <laughs> so with play all his uh, 22 seasons with uh, the, the Tigers, he uh, went on to be an announcer for them, worked in their front office uh, for many years as well. Uh, 18 all-star games. And, uh, you know, again, just a, one, one tremendous uh, ball player. He, uh, uh, I guess what he, we went to the hall of fame in, in 1980 in his first time on the ballot. Um, Joe, your thoughts on the great Al Kaline? Well, I remember the Al Kaline baseball card I had as a kid, and I was used to 
looking at the cards to see where uh, the players had played their minor league baseball, you know, how many years it took to get to the major leagues. And I do think I'm correct in saying that there was no minor league record on, right. Al, on Al K-Line. It's like, this guy came right out of high school, I guess, and he never put up a bad line. I, I, you know, I, most of us baseball freaks were a little wonky with stats and stuff. Uh, and it, it was just amazing to me that the consistency year after year after year and, and 10 gold glove awards to go along with the, uh, the great hitting and, and a model citizen off the field as well. And, though he probably cost the Twins a few games back in the glory days of Oliva and Gillibrew. Who didn't like Al Kaline? Who wouldn't want to emulate someone like that? And he was truly the face of the franchise. And just a, a quirky story that sounds kind of goofy now, but back when I was a kid, I remember going to the um, drugstore to pick up a pack of batteries uh, for a flashlight or something. And I, I, you know, I was pretty young, didn't know much, I guess. And I picked up a pack of batteries and I thought on the batteries, it said Al K-Line batteries. This guy really is great. They've named the battery after him. Uh, and you know, by the time I was 30, I had figured out that's, that's alkaline, but, uh, <laughs> but it's a little things like that, that you remember because when you, you know, you grow up watching these guys uh, and we, you know, we reminisce of, about them now that they're gone, it really takes you back to your youth and some of the the strange things that, you know, flood your memory at a time like that. Jay? Uh, you know, being a National League guy in those days, I didn't see Al Kaline a lot other than, say, the 68 World Series or the occasion where they were on the Saturday afternoon game of the week with Kurt Gowdy and Tony Kubek. But I will tell you this, as my dad explained to me, of course, he's the one who got me into baseball. My hero uh, growing up was Roberto Clemente. And my dad told me Al Kaline was the Roberto Clemente of the American League because of the consistency, the loyalty. He could hit, he could field, he could throw, he won gold gloves. He was always in the all-star game and he was a model citizen. So uh, when Al passed, I dug out the few baseball cards I still have and I found my 72 Al Kaline card and I still have it and I still cherish it. Yeah, and just thank you. And talk about the consistency, you know, 297 batting average. He retired just after getting 3,000 hits. Yeah, yep. He was one home run shy of 400 and had over 1,500 RBIs. That's uh, amazing. That's a, that definitely a, a well-built career uh, for sure. Yeah, um, I was going to say that's a, that was a great analogy, uh, K-Line being the Roberto Clemente of the uh, – American League. That, that certainly seems to fit. Yeah, no question. Um, next play we're going to talk about, uh, not in the Hall of Fame, but uh, he might be considered maybe the best player of his generation not in there right now, and that would be one Dick Allen who played for the Philadelphia Phillies uh, for, for many years and, um, you know, had, had some good power, good pop. Uh, Joe, what's your thoughts on Dick Allen? Well, I, yeah, I, I was looking over the list of, you know, some of the well-known players who had passed away in the past year. And you're right, Dick Allen was it's not in the Hall of Fame, although I think he um, came close. There was, uh, I forget what they called the committee. I guess it was something, I don't think it was the Veterans Committee, but they at the time called it like the, the Golden, Golden Age, Age Committee. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think they were, they were going to vote again this year for induction for 2022. But the, I think the last time out, uh, he was like one vote short of that. But I remember a week back when I first started following baseball, he was Richie Allen. Yeah. And on some pretty good Phillies teams, 
back in the um, uh, 60s. Um, you know, Jim Bunning was on that team. And, and I remember um, everyone always talking about what tremendous power Richie Allen had, Dick Allen had, just, just hit ginormous home runs. And then, as you know, in later years, he became something of a controversial figure, I suppose, because he had had some um, conflicts and uh, I think had gotten one of his teammates hit him with a bat or something. There was some type of conflict there. And then at some point he smashed his hand through a headlight on a car. I remember reading. So I don't know all the details of that, but that that's something that shows up on his career radar screen. But you look at the guy's stats, um, you know, they're, 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 they seem pretty hall of fame worthy. And uh, I, I suspect he, uh, his behavior the stuff that kind of got him some bad press back in the day. I'm, I'm not sure that would have played out quite, quite that way today. Uh, he, he was on the receiving end of, of some a pretty nasty um, racist kind of yep. uh, feedback as well, much like Hank Aaron was. And we'll be certainly talking about that uh, down the road, but, uh, but Dick Allen probably wasn't quite as apt to, um, not say anything about that. His, his own mercurial kind of temperament might have gotten him in trouble, but uh, uh, given what he was dealing with, it's probably understandable. Jay? Yeah, I do remember Richie Allen for the Phillies and that huge bat he swung. Um, and when Joe said uh, Jim Bunning, and I, I'm, I know I'm going to go there for no reason whatsoever, Clay Dalrymple. I just, I, he was the catcher. Okay. <laughs> but, um, Richie Allen, Dick Allen, and Joan nailed it. He was outspoken uh, at a time when that was not a safe thing to be, especially for a man of color. And uh, then he changed his name to Dick Allen. And of course, everyone said he was, you know, he was a troublemaker because he insisted that we call him by his chosen name. And I guess then he went, you know, to the uh, White Sox and other places. But he, uh, I think he will make it. Uh, I, I just think he was, like Joe said, a vote short uh, before. And I just think that people are realizing he was just ahead of his time for being outspoken. And uh, the current voters, although old, will uh, give him his due. All right. So let's uh, go to a player that I can't say I saw play because he retired when I was three years old. Uh, Whitey Ford of the great Yankees teams, the chairman of the board. Um, 10-time All-Star and uh, also well-chronicled as uh, traveling in the circle with uh, Mickey Mantle and Billy Martin and getting into plenty of mischief uh, amongst those uh, that trio. Uh, Jay, what recollections do you have on Whitey Ford? Um, I'm like you. Of everyone on this list, he kind of came before the rest of them. And, you know, he was a Yankee for life and he, you know, represented the team well and was a class act despite hanging out with Billy Martin and Mickey Mantle. And we'll know, you know, Billy Martin was always getting in fights and Mickey Mantle was always, you know, he had bad legs and bad knees and he was always out drinking. We never kind of heard that about Whitey Ford because he always performed and he didn't miss a lot of time. He was a great World Series pitcher too. Um, and, you know, I can't remember the stats that they quoted when he passed away of, you know, his 
playoff record, but it was just unbelievable. And, you know, he, he's the throwback to the Yankees before the CBS days uh, and the dynasties of, the, of those years before the late 60s. Just an amazing pitcher. Joe. Yeah, you know, I was thinking, uh, you know, as, as Jay was, and, and you as well, Jeff, mentioning that we don't have quite the recollection of Whitey Ford as we do most of these other guys. And I was thinking of that very fact, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, if we had gotten together to talk about the deaths of Hall of Famers, chances are many of those guys would have really been on the periphery of our memory. But now here, as we sit in 2021, most of the guys who are passing on are very much players from, uh, you know, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which was back in our wonder years, and we remember them uh, very, very well, which is why I think I think I'm safe in saying that we were probably all feeling a little extra um, sadness and yes. uh, melancholy over um, many of these names that we're talking about tonight. But I remember Whitey Ford a little bit, you know, and I'm, I think I've got a baseball card somewhere, but by the time I – I found out who Whitey Ford was. He was very near the end of his career. My dad was a big Yankees fan, and I remembered my dad talking about uh, Whitey Ford and how great he was. And I, I seem to remember one year he had a, a like a record of twenty-five and four, some phenomenal uh, uh, one-loss um, season. And he and, and and as Jay said, he's he's still holds the record. I, I think some of the records for most um, success in postseason play. He he was lights out in the yeah. postseason and sort of like this I guess sort of like the the almost the straight man in the rat pack of baseball when you start talking about hanging out with guys like uh, Billy Martin and such but uh, but yeah Ford Ford his legacy is well cemented in uh, in New York for sure in all of baseball yeah uh, uh, records like uh, consecutive scoreless innings 33 and two-thirds wow. 10 wins uh, 22 starts 146 innings pitched and 94 strikeouts Man. So there's a, a lot of incredible, uh, incredible numbers there. So for the big red machine, you, you know, you think about the likes of, you know, Pete Rose and Johnny Bench, but man, the, the, the straw that stirred the drink was MVP Joe Morgan, who was the MVP in those uh, uh, championship years in the, in the mid seventies. And of course, everybody remembers when he was at the plate with the, uh, the, the little uh, twitch of the elbow and uh, you know, for a, a little guy had a lot of pop in the bat. Um, Joe, what are your thoughts on Mr. Morgan? Well, I remember being so surprised when I, uh, at some point early in my uh, baseball youth, finding out that Joe Morgan was such a little guy. Uh, what was he like? Five, eight or something and uh um but he swung a big bat and i remember the little chicken wing flap as well i, I you know an iconic kind of image of joe morgan up there at the plate and i often thought that some of those seasons he put together during the big bread machine era were some of the most complete seasons you could imagine i mean he hit for average he hit for power he could steal a base he was a great fielder a great influence in the clubhouse i mean and you know a, a true mvp and then in later years, we watched him in the broadcast booth. I remember watching him with, um, who was a John Miller, I believe, he and John Miller. That's, that's where I remember him most in the broadcast years. And, he, you know, he was very insightful. Uh, I always enjoyed listening to him. And I certainly remember him having some big hits and making some big plays on those great Reds teams. Jay? 
he was great in the broadcast booth um, and he did not suffer fools gladly. And, you know, they kind of pushed him out because he didn't want to adapt to all the sabermetric stuff and statistics because he just told it like he saw it. That's why he was so good in the broadcast booth. And you team him with someone as awesome as John Miller. That's what you get. Um, I somewhere have a Joe Morgan baseball card for Houston. And I don't remember if it was the Colt 45s or the Astros, Mm -hmm. but I remember that. And if I remember correctly, the trade may have been for Dennis Menke. Uh, yes, I think you're right, Jay. I, I, and I thought Cincinnati won this trade. And I, I'm a Dennis Menke fan, as a matter of fact. Um, and being a, uh, you know, growing up in the 70s, a Pirates fan in the 70s, I hated the Reds. Um, I would say nasty things about them while sitting at Three Rivers Stadium. Uh, filthy things, as a matter of fact. But you know what? I never did about Joe Morgan because for a guy like Joe said, who was so compact, nice word for being short, he had power. He could hit it to all fields. He could steal bases. He was a great second baseman. And like you said, Jeff, a two-time MVP in back-to-back years, 75 and 76. Joe Morgan was just a fantastic all-around baseball player. Yeah, and you mentioned the broadcast booth. Uh, you know, he also was in uh, the postseason booth on NBC with uh, Bob Costas and Bob Euchre, and that was a pretty nice blend of a booth. I, I mean, that was yep. almost Monday Night Football-like. <laughs> Agreed. The, the chemistry was just great. Yes, no question about it. So the next uh, guy is, you know, it's been a rough few weeks in Braves country um, with uh, with the passing of uh, of legendary players. Phil Necro, Nuxy, Um you know, he uh, played a very long time in the major <laughs> leagues. Uh, I think he got all the way to age 48, if I am not mistaken. Um, you know, he won uh, 318 games, uh, Hall of Fame in, in 97. Of course, you know, when I sent the list out to you guys, I I had put not Hall of Famer, but Noteworthy. And I must have been thinking of his brother, Joe Necro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who, by the way, he won like, what, 218 games himself. Yeah. <laughs> Which, no slouch. Yeah, no slouch at all. And a uh, great story I actually just heard the other day. Johnny Bench was on the Dan Patrick show, and they were talking about Hank Aaron, but Nuxie came up, and um, and uh, Johnny relayed the story that, uh, that uh, Sparky Anderson called him in the office one day and said, Hey, John, we got a chance to trade for Phil Necro. What do you think? And Johnny said, well, you might want to consider trading for his catcher, too. (laughs) (laughs) Because catchers did not like catching the knuckleball because they don't know where it's going. Necro didn't know where it was going. Uh, But uh, and he certainly is one of the guys that, uh, you know, he played on a lot of bad Braves teams. And actually what he was, he's the last guy to win 20 and lose 20 in the same season. I was wondering if you were going to say that. Yes. What, does, what does that say about a team like that? Yeah, the 79 Braves were not good. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, that uh, uh, is pretty remarkable when you think about that, uh, that stat. Um, Joe, what's your thoughts? Well, you start talking about the Braves, and I know that's right in your wheelhouse, Jeff. But, uh, yeah, Necro, you're right, was pitched until – what, 48, almost 49 years old. And so he goes way back. And I remember um, back in the day, you know, living 
growing up here in Orlando, the nearest major league team was, was the Atlanta Braves. And so we used to listen to the radio broadcast. And that's one of my first exposures to baseball was listening to some of those early Braves teams and occasionally watching them on TV. And I was fascinated with the knuckleball. Uh, my dad uh, would take a baseball and my dad could throw a knuckleball. <laughs> and he, he used to say, well, this is probably how Negro is holding the ball. And I, I was just I'm just fascinated by that. And of course, I think um, Wilbur Wood and Hoyt Wilhelm were, you know, knuckleballers. But Necro was like a nutsy was the guy that we, we remembered so well. And just a, just a class act. And he pitched on a lot of rather, you know, probably pretty mediocre teams, uh, but put some great stats together and pitched a tremendous number of innings. And uh, I, I just have very fond memories of that whole, that whole generation of brave teams and growing up listening to um, Ernie Johnson Sr. and others uh, call some of those call some of those games. Jay, I wanted to add that if the Reds had traded for his catcher, I don't think they would have room for Biff Pocaroba. <laughs> <laughs> One of the all-time great names, right there. Yes. Dalrymple and Pocaroba. What is it yes. with the catchers? Right. I don't know. Yeah, Biff is a. Biff is a great catcher's name, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, Phil Necro, man. Um, although, you know, uh, Joe brought up Wilbur Wood and Hoyt Wilhelm. The first I remember about knuckleballers was Phil Necro. And d does anybody know what he threw before he became a knuckleballer? I mean, was he just a failed fastball curveball pitcher? Um, that shows you how, you know, tied in his name is with the knuckleball. And so – Talk about, you know, he's not going to hurt his arm. He's going to go out there every fourth or fifth day. He could pitch the whole game. You know, those guys don't just lose it. You know, either the ball stops moving or the air pressure affects it or, you know, their fingernail gets scuffed or they have a hangnail or something like that. Those guys eat innings. And, you know, and being that there aren't many knuckleball pitchers, especially now, imagine how tough that is for hitters. Right now, everyone throws 100 miles an hour and everyone th swings as hard as possible. Bring in a knuckleball pitcher and let's see how that goes. So, you know, Phil Necro led the way for that. He certainly deserved his Hall of Fame vote. Yeah, and, you know, and, and really the only other notable person to pitch a knuckleball that I can think of is Tim Wakefield, right? Yep, absolutely. He, now, he was a bad fastball pitcher who took up the knuckleball. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, uh yeah, I would be curious to see if somebody could make a knuckleball work today. Uh, that would be uh, kind of an interesting experiment to see uh, see happen. Um, next uh, gentleman we'll talk about, actually more noted uh, as a manager, uh, Tommy Lasorda, uh, longtime Dodger manager, um, co you know managed some championship teams, and certainly was a guy that was. Uh, quite fond of his fame and notoriety as well. He definitely played and catered to that, uh, that's for sure. And uh, the other thing that uh, kind of sticks out to me, which also made the rounds on uh, Twitter and social media, was his uh, infamous fight with the Philly Fanatic, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is an all-time great classic. Jay? He was a showman. I mean, he was an excellent manager too, obviously. Uh, and being that we've lost Larry King in the past week, he, I remember a Tommy Lasorda quip that he told us is that Tommy Lasorda never in his baseball life paid for a dinner. And it wasn't because everyone wanted to be good to him. It was because he knew how to work it such that you would pick up his dinner for him. And 
you know, you, you may say he's a mooch or something for doing that, but some people may say he's smart for pulling that one off. And we know Tommy liked to eat and he liked his pasta with clam sauce and everything else. But, you know, he, he's the Dodgers. Okay, we know Sandy Koufax is the Dodgers too. Two totally different personalities. But Tommy was in the, in the organization forever. Walter Alston finally retired and Tommy got his chance and he took him to the world championship and he made a bazillion friends along the way. Sorry to lose him, but he certainly deserved his place in Cooperstown. Joe? Yeah, it, it doesn't surprise me that Lasorda never paid for dinner. I, I assumed he never missed dinner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I suspect he's one of those guys, the players loved him and he loved his players. I, you know, he used to tick me off sometimes, you know, when, when, <laughs> the way he acted, I'm thinking, oh, this guy's kind of a jerk. But you know, I kind of, kind of, you know, over the years, figured, well, you know, this is this is just who he is, and you, you know, you have to respect what he what he accomplished for yep. sure. I just remember some watching some clip uh, of a game. It might be on YouTube, or if, I don't know where I saw it. Where it, it was a game where the Dodgers disintegrated in the ninth inning and blew a six run lead in the ninth inning to somebody, and you could just see Lasorda getting ready to go into outer space. It was like 10, 9, 8, 7. You know, he was just going to going to explode. But uh, he's one of, you know, he's one of those colorful characters. Every every sport has them. And, um, you know, he, he will be fondly remembered, I'm sure, not only by Dodger fans, but by just about everybody who, who ever had the, the um, opportunity to see him in a game. Yeah, one of the stars of his Dodger teams uh, just passing away recently, Don Sutton. I love Don Sutton more as the Braves announcer than I do the Dodger player, but uh, he certainly uh, was a guy who, uh, you know, kind of went somewhat unheralded uh, during his time, uh, but uh, was certainly, you know, he went over 300 games. He, uh, I think he finished up with the Brewers, if I'm not mistaken, yes. uh, towards the end of his career. Uh, but a guy that also couple things that uh, kind of stand out to me because I remember uh, seeing, you know, he, he kind of got the celebrity treatment a little bit because, you know, he was a, he, he was nice looking guy and was able to kind of parlay that. He, he was like a panelist on match game yeah. at one time. Um, and then he actually told Pete Van Weeren when he was uh, being interviewed uh, on, on a pregame show, he told Pete, I'm going to work with you someday. <laughs> which I which turned out to be very quite true. Uh, Don Sutton, uh, give me your thoughts on on Mr. Sutton, Joe. Yeah, it's, it's, I remember um, Sutton when he came up as a young guy. I think he started very early in his career, and I I think when he was starting, some of the great Dodger you know teams of the '60s that had faded. And then the great teams that Lasorda would have later weren't quite here yet. Yep. And so he was pitching at a time when the Dodgers weren't that great. And I, I read a, a stat today that said he holds the record for pitching the most nine-inning shutouts without getting a decision. So that tells me he was on some weak-hitting teams. And mm. perhaps he would have had a much better line of stats somewhere else but but he kind of kind of snuck up on you after all those years like wow this guy has put some great great numbers together and uh, I was impressed by the fact that he was apparently very highly regarded by those in the game and he was married to the same woman for what 
50 years or something. I think I read today. I'm always interested to, you know, read up on that kind of, on that kind of stuff. So he, he, le- he leaves a, a very impressive legacy and um, certainly, an, a, you know, another great loss for baseball. Jay? Yeah, I think he was pitching for the Dodgers before the Garvey, say, Lopes guys came in in the mid-70s there and won a couple of division NL West titles. But he, he was an innings eater. He wasn't flamboyant. He was steady. And, um, you know, Jeff brought it up, and I was try- trying to think, you know, man, did he have a great voice for announcing. He was just so good in the Braves booth. I mean, all of those guys were, but his voice stood out more amongst any of the rest of them. And the other thing, he had great hair. He had a perm like you wouldn't believe, and he didn't care when it went gray either. So, you know, Don Sutton, you know, you could tell he was confident, but he wasn't cocky, and he was successful at everything he did. He was just a great pitcher. Yeah, and, you know, when you mentioned him as, as as an announcer, I think one of the things that kind of sta- stood out to me, you know, you because know, you know he was he he was a Southern boy, yep, and and so he wanted to work for Atlanta, and you know he just had a nice, easy demeanor, and he really fit well with whoever he was partnered with, yeah, and it was always very seamless. So, uh, uh, you know, definitely a sadness there, and then of course, you know, just last week we lost the late great Hank Aaron, and um, you know the the things that. Uh, Two things that really jump out at me regarding Hank Aaron. And, you know, one is you probably have heard this a bunch of times now since his passing was the fact if he took away his 755 home runs, he'd still have over 3,000 hits. Yes. <laughs> that, that is pretty remarkable. And then the, the other thing that kind of stands out to me is I've never any heard anybody say a bad word about Hank Aaron. Yep. And you, you think about you think about all you know the players that have come and gone that have been superstars that, and nobody has said anything negative about Hank Aaron. About the only thing I can think of, I heard a story one time, and this isn't even really bad, but you know somebody had remarked you know when he was in his early front office days with the Braves with the farm system that you know he would uh, show up to the minor league game to have a couple of beers and leave after the fourth inning. Well, that's the worst thing you can say about somebody, right? <laughs> it's like unbelievable. But yeah, you, but yeah, he was so much more than just you know uh, a power hitter. He played great defense. Uh, you know, just just a tremendous all around baseball player. Uh, Jay, you lead off on on Hank. Sure, they, and you know, one of the other things that many people who did not know have learned over the past week is what he put up with when he was coming up in baseball and playing in the South. I mean, face it, he was less than 10 years after Jackie Robinson, and he was still putting up with that stuff. And frankly, he was like Jackie Robinson in that he never lashed out or responded to it in a negative way. And to hold that in and to maintain class and dignity and then to perform the way he did, that's why he – you know, simply one of the greatest of all time. And I think all three of us probably remember exactly where we were when he hit number 715. And um, my dad stayed home from work that night just to watch the baseball game. You know, and my, you know, in those days, we thought the three best players in the NL were Clemente, Mays, and Aaron. And you could see all three of them in the all-star game every year. And just to know that Hammer and Hank hit 755 and went on to a front office career and was such a class act just makes, makes you feel good inside and happy that we had the chance to see him. Joe. 
Yeah, I, I tell you what, we, we could have spent an entire program and then some talking about Hank Aaron and the related storylines. Um, I've read a lot of articles this week uh, about Henry Aaron and have learned a few things. Now, Jay alluded to it, and that is the racism and white supremacy that he put up with for years. He grew up with it in the South, having been born in the deep South in Alabama. And he, and he did keep a lot of it in. Uh, he didn't draw attention to it. And I, I had no idea uh, on, you know, April 8th, 1974, when he hit number 715, that the first thing that he probably thought to himself was, my God, I'm glad this is finally over, yeah. you know. Uh, for us, it was a very joyous occasion. And I, yeah, I, for me, it was three things I remember. Where was I when JFK was shot in Dallas? Where was I when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon? And where was I when Hank Aaron hit 7.15? And um, that, that night, uh, it was, I, we all remember it well. Um, NBC had the national broadcast that night. I think it was uh, Kurt Gowdy had the call for NBC, although Vince Scully's call probably is the more famous yeah. at this point. But I had my little um, tape recorder with a little external mic, and I sat it up right in front of the old Zenith television, <laughs> just hoping he might hit that home run. And I had tape rolling, and sure enough, he hit the home run. And I still have that cassette somewhere up in the attic. Uh, I'm surprised it hasn't fully disintegrated by now. What was that? Uh, 40, 47 years ago. Yeah. But, but that, you know, that was a very happy moment, but that's my experience. You know, that was my experience of that moment as I'm sure it was for millions of baseball fans, but for Henry Aaron, it was a much different story in a lot of ways. And there was a great article that sports illustrated had this past week. Uh, the writer was Stephanie Epstein the top, then the, the headline was Hank Aaron never forgot how America treated him and we should not either. Great article. And, and let, if you don't mind, I want to just share a quick outtake from that. It was a beautifully Please. written article. And she sums it up by saying that some baseball fans, some Americans might be tempted to see all of this as the distant past to view Aaron's story as a Disney movie about triumphing over oppression. Aaron never saw it that way. He kept all of the hate mail. In a 2014 interview, he said he kept it to remind myself that we are not that far removed from when I was chasing the record. If you think that, you are fooling yourself. A lot of things have happened in this country, but we have a long way to go. There's not a whole lot that has changed. And he got more hate mail for that, mm. uh, from what I read. He said, we have moved in the right direction and there have been improvements, but we still have a long ways to go in this country. The bigger difference is that back then, back in his day, he said they had hoods. Now they have neckties and starched shirts. Mm. And I thought to myself, he's, he's probably right. Three weeks ago, it wasn't starched shirts. It was shirts that said, stop the steal with white supremacists rampaging through the halls of Congress. So I, you know, crazy thought. It was almost like Henry Aaron must have finally seen enough. Yeah. You know, he must have finally seen enough. So, and, and the article sums it up by saying Henry Aaron triumphed amid, not over oppression. When you think of him, yes, think of the triumph, think of the happy moments, but think of that oppression that he dealt with too. That's the legacy that 
or that that's how we could honor his legacy is to remember that don't forget that and don't be afraid to you know to speak up about that aaron said he would have been the first one out there marching in the front lines last summer after the the, the george floyd situation in minneapolis had he been able to uh, mm-hmm. but he never forgot it um and uh I think his lasting legacy would be that for his fans, maybe they shouldn't either. Yeah, and you know, and I'm, you know, I'm off my soapbox now. That, <laughs> you know, very well said. That was yes, that, that really hit home, and I, I learned a few things this week that I that I had never read before. Yeah, and you know, and and it was remarkable. You know, the death threats that uh, they had for that. You know, they were there were snipers at the stadium yeah. that night. In, you and, know, uh, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Jeff, and I'm. You don't mind me interrupting just a second. You remember sure. the, the, the kind of, again, another iconic moment uh, as Aaron uh, crossed home plate that night at Fulton County Stadium. His mother was one of the first to greet him, and she embraced him. Um, and, you know, Vin Scully remarked on that. But then his mother uh, said sometime later, maybe a few years later, that she smothered him with a hug, not from delight, but to shield him from the fear of snipers. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that? Yeah, and you know, and you and of course, you know, the two Yahoos that ran on the field, you know, interrupting his moment. And it was a wonder they didn't get shot. <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, uh, just unbelievable that uh, the when you think of that moment, yeah, that, that you know all that he went through at that time. Now, interestingly enough, you know, seven fourteen, you know, he he at that in Cincinnati off of Jack Billingham, and going back to the Johnny Bench story. You know, Johnny says Jack said he still called the wrong pitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and, and Johnny said, well, no, you threw the wrong pitch, but I'm going to shake his hand when he comes to home plate. And, uh, and when you think about that, you know, uh, you know, Aaron wasn't supposed to play. He yeah. was going to wanted to take time off and, 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 and set the record at home. But the commissioner, Bowie Kuhn, made him play in Cincinnati. And then did not show up uh, the next Monday night in Atlanta to watch seven fifteen. Yeah, so yeah, you just think about all that, and it's uh, it, it is mind boggling. You know, this year there will be no inductees into the Hall of Fame. Um, first time in I forget how many years. What eighty seven eight eight years? Okay, so then you know Bonds, Clemens, and Schilling were all short of the seventy five percent. And I just wanted to get get a quick take from you guys. Do you think those guys deserve to be in, Jay? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, Schilling's not in because of his views. I, I don't know if we can argue that. Uh, he's not a shoe-in were it not for that. He's borderline to me. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was great in the postseason. Um, Bonds was worthy of the Hall of Fame before he cheated, so maybe he should get in. Notice I'm not giving you a direct answer. <laughs> Clemens, we don't know how long he cheated. You know, he certainly is one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Uh, you know, and are they going to change the way the voting is done? I doubt it. Baseball tends to stick to the same thing year after year. Um, if I were given a vote, and my friends will kill me for saying this, I would vote Barry Bonds into the Hall of Fame, not the other two. Okay, and and, and yeah, and you could definitely argue that Bonds and Clemens um, probably didn't need PEDs to get in. Exactly. If, uh, Joe, what do you think? Yeah, I, 
you know, I've gone back and forth on that as well. And I, and I agree with everything that, that Jay has said. I would, I would vote no on Schilling for, for the reasons you've stated. I think his stats are probably borderline, but he's done himself no favors by right. engaging in the public display of, of um, uh, delusional thinking. Um, Clemens and Bonds, yeah. I, I, if you ask me today, I would probably vote no. <laughs> ask me a year from now, maybe somebody could convince me. Uh, and that's, that's just kind of where I am on that. Yeah, it is very polarizing. That's uh, for sure as far as that discussion goes. And now, Jay, you brought this up earlier, and, you know, we lost the great Larry King uh, just recently. And, uh, you know, he was a huge baseball fan yep. uh, and uh, was, you know, often seated behind home plate at Dodger games. And, uh, and I know, know, Jay, you've been sharing some stories on, on Facebook. And one of the ones that, uh, that I've heard you tell before, I actually heard this week on the Tony Kornheiser show uh, on his podcast. Uh, Tony talks about how the most amazing thing he ever saw was at the top of their break, Larry King taking a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and then, boom, right back into the show. He had less than eight minutes. Um, I guess at like 58 and change past the hour was when they went to the commercial break and they came back at six past and 10 seconds. So he had almost eight minutes to take a snooze there. And yes, he did. Just sitting in his chair, he would just lean back until it was time to come back. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty remarkable. And then you think about the career at CNN uh, following late night radio and, and uh, yep. Uh, just uh, amazing, amazing stuff there. Joe, did you, do you have any thoughts, uh, recollections on that? I, I remember Larry King from the overnight show, um, going to school early in the morning. I don't know. It might've been near the end of high school. Or maybe I was in college by then and we'd catch the last pro probably what would have been the tail end of his overnight show on, uh, on the mutual network. And I, I really enjoyed him. I, it was, you know, the calls were quick. He kept things moving along. Uh, he was not, uh, you know, stepping over anybody or making it all about himself. Right. And uh, so I, I enjoyed that. What a, <laughs> what a lost art form in some ways. Yeah. And of course, you know, you and I probably got to hear a lot of him too, uh, whenever we had morning shift at uh, WKIS. Cause oh, that, yeah. That would be was true as well. There. Absolutely. All right. So as much as these guys love to come on and talk about sports, you know, they love the TV theme clothes as much as I do. So yep. We're going to come right back and do that right after this. No Republicans, no Democrats, no team from Washington, no team with a star on the side of their head. We don't even talk about alpha and beta storms around here. And if you believe all of that, I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. Captain and Company in the morning, join me 9 to noon. Weekday mornings on OldSchool101.com because class is always in session around here. Virus or no virus. That's
right, and that is the theme from Growing Pains. That was Jay Cresswell's choice. And, of course, uh, this is a, a theme song that has some uh, star-studded power behind it, Jay. Yeah, and there were three different versions of that theme song for the TV show. The first season was just P.J. Thomas. And then uh, they did a B.J. Thomas with Jennifer Warnes, which is the version we just heard, which I believe was seasons two, three, five, and six or seven. Season four, for some reason, was not Jennifer Warnes. It was Dusty Springfield singing with uh, B.J. Thomas. So maybe there was a contractual issue there or a royalty payment issue. But I'll tell you this. I loved the show. Um, Alan Thicke was great. I had a crush on Joanna Kearns. Um, Kirk Cameron, who was Mike Sieber, I, I, I loved him because he was a smart aleck. And, you know, then we know Tracy Gold was on there and Jeremy, uh, I can't remember Jeremy's last, Jeremy, Jeremy Miller. Oh yeah, thank you. And then they adopted homeless child Leo DiCaprio for the last season of the show. I just thought it was a really well-written sitcom, but I will tell you this, as, as the formula that sitcoms do, they open with a scene, there's a punchline, and then the theme song starts immediately. And the, the, you know, the BJ Thomas, show me that smile again, with that, it was very up, it was very peppy, it was lots of piano and everything. It just made you feel good. That theme song made you feel good, and it set the tone for the rest of the show. I, I still love it to this day. Yeah, that ran for seven seasons on ABC, 1985, 1992. Uh, Joe, were you a fan of Growing Pains? I must confess I was not, not because I didn't like it. I'm just not that familiar with it, but you have um, created some interest at this point. I'm sure it's available somewhere. And, you know, really good sitcoms are hard to come by. Uh, for every good one out there, historically, there's probably 20 or 30 that are just total nonsense garbage. Those are awful. Yeah, absolutely. So well, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, and to think of, you know, when you think about that, you know, uh, you know, Kirk Cameron peaked early, Leonardo yep. DiCaprio peaked later, <laughs> and much bigger. <laughs> yes. All right, next up is Joe's Selection. That is the theme from Adam 12, Joe Finger Selection. Joe. Well, grew up watching the black and white, uh, you know, one Adam 12, one Adam 12, a 211 in progress, one Adam 12, <laughs> handle code three. Um, you know, those are iconic <laughs> phrases. Um, but, and, you know, Martin Milner, Kent McCord, riding in the black and white through the streets of um, Los Angeles in one of the last uh, classic good guy cop yes. squeaky clean shows from the Jack Webb school. And I uh, still enjoy watching that in reruns um, today. Um, and I must confess that I, I, I was afraid Jeff was going to ask me what exactly this one dash Adam dash 12 stand for, you know, I mean, wh wh where did that come from? So uh, for the super trivia buffs, I, I learned today that the, the number one refers to the division number in Los Angeles. Uh, the number one would have been central division in Los Angeles, although the show was actually filmed in the 
then fledgling Rampart division for television <laughs> because they had a much nicer looking uh, station at Rampart at the time. So a little, a little PR um, influence there, no doubt. And uh, Adam referred to the type of unit, uh, the two-person unit with two cops in the car. That was called the Adam um, squad, I guess. And then the, the last number, the 12, referred to the division number, a more specific geographical uh, location. Uh, wow. But, See, I never, but then I never... Rampart Division, as you, as you may know, uh, also became the location of uh, Station 51, Los Angeles County Fire Department, in the TV series Emergency, which Emergency. I guess was, a, was a roughly a handoff. I don't know if you'd call it a spinoff, but certainly a, a segue in from, from Adam-12 when it had uh, finished its run. Yeah, on NBC. yeah no, no doubt about it. Uh, Jay, what, what's your recollections of Adam-12? I loved Adam-12. Um, I think it may have followed Dragnet as the the cop show du jour. And of course, Jack Webb had something to do with both of them. And I think Adam-12 was great. Everyone knew Martin Milner and Kent McCord. And, you know, after that, if we ever saw Kent McCord, it was probably on a bad episode of Love American Style or, <laughs> or The Love Boat or something like that. Um, and I, I, whilst, whilst researching that on Wikipedia, I, there was a reboot of Adam-12 in the 80s. And I remember nothing about it. <laughs> Me neither. It was, it was horrible. I watched one episode. And I said, I can't do it. <laughs> You're right. I remember that. It was, it, was, it was awful. Well, I'm glad I missed it because it would have ruined the uh, memory of the original for me. I just loved those cop procedural dramas uh, that Jack Webb did. It was fantastic. You know, and I can't recall any series since that is focused on B-Cops. I mean, I know Blue Bloods kind of mixes in a little bit, but, mm -hmm. uh, but not exclusively. Right. So that's kind of a, a rarity in its own right. And that was a, uh, uh, again, on NBC, 1968 to 1975. And, uh, sure. and uh, yeah, and, and, you know, Joe talked about the jargon. That was kind of a, you know, kind of a learning thing for all of us yeah uh, and, and all that good stuff uh definitely definitely great stuff there well guys as always man i do appreciate it uh, with the hall of fame discussion and great selections on the tv themes so thanks again for being here joe finger and jake russell thank you jeff good to talk to you both thanks jeff you too joe really appreciate it had a great time talking baseball and with that we are done here Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at JeffAllen underscore 88, on Facebook at JeffAllen88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Does your dog itch, suffer from debilitating skin allergies, or trouble hot spots? We have the solution using the healing power of neem. Kramer Cell is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. Go to KramerSalve.net to order today with new low pricing. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E dot net.